Greetings, most excellent Theophilus. Grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This isn't relevant to our topic today, but um, I have decided to try again to read through the book of Enoch. Um, not that it is scripture, uh, but that there are some people who do turn to the book of Enoch, so it's important, prudent, when talking about something, to actually know what you are talking about. Um, it's an interesting thing. Um, there are a lot of really ran random things that are taught to men that are identified as sins. Um, only one of which is objectively, according to the Bible, a sin. Um, so the angels basically teach man um, about constellations, Again, remember, all these things are deemed sins. Constellations, knowledge of them, clouds, <laughs> astrology, enchantments, um, weapon making, makeup usage, um, gems, uh, and dyeing fabrics, uh, or dyeing mixtures just in general. Um... The signs of the earth, so, you know, like, smoke from volcano equals bad time for Pompeii. Uh, that's apparently a sin to know. Um, understanding the sun. Uh, and the courses of the moon. So I guess just, like, the idea of the waxing and waning and full. And, um, Pretty interesting. Um, the Nephilim, according to the Book of Enoch, are also 3,000 eels tall, which is two miles. Two miles tall! Um, that's intense, <laughs> to say the least. But that's besides the point. Um, there's a announcement I need to make. I am going to keep up my weekly episodes until the anniversary. Next month of the podcast. Two years. And then I am going to go on hiatus until I feel inspired again to make this show. And I'm going to wait until that episode to, uh, I guess, get out my thoughts about it. But um, it's been fun. It's been what I hoped it was. Um. But I don't really have much inspiration right now. Um, so, <laughs> on that note, let's talk theology and apologetics. Witnessing. Witnessing is an important thing. It's something we are called to do. 
There's a lot of people who do not do it effectively, do not do it right. People build up in their minds a assumption of a group of people. And I'm guilty of this. I struggle with this. And their entire way, the big, the bigger issue that this play that that plays into is, um, I view all witnessing as a conversation. It should be as a conversation. A conversation is talking with people, not talking at people. However, plenty of people witness or try to witness through the means of talking at people. Oh, you're a... Oh, you're this, so you believe this. And this is wrong because this... Here's, here's something crazy. People have varying beliefs within a system. I am a Calvinist. That does not mean I believe Tulip is the gospel. There are some Calvinists who do make tulip the gospel that you must believe in order to be part of the elect. Same, same overarching belief, Calvinism, God has predestined everything that will come to pass, that man is totally depraved, that men are unconditionally elected, that there is a limited atonement, that for a group of people to whom are given an irresistible grace who will be preserved, for they are saints. Now, if someone is going to talk to me and assume that I think they're not saved because they're an Arminian, they have assumed something that is incorrect. And I'm instantly shutting off my intake of what they're saying to some degree because I, I, I instantly they've told me they are not interested in actually understanding who I am and what I believe. They heard a phrase, and they're going to assume what I believe. And it's going to be inaccurate. Because when you make a blanket statement, when you make a blanket, when you have a blanketed comprehension, you're going to miss talking to the individual. I cannot talk to a Sunni Muslim with the assumption, well, not assumption, with the forced arrogance of acting like they are an Ahmadi. A Sunni is not an Ahmadi. And I cannot effectively witness to a Sunni Muslim or a Shia Muslim, honestly, any group of Muslim other than Ahmadi, by treating them like Ahmadis. 
because an Ahmadi Muslim is the only Muslim that believes there was a prophet after Muhammad. Um, the only definitive statements we should be making in witnessing are ones we make about our own beliefs, about scripture. The Bible says this, the X says this, or objective elements of what they believe. Um, Surah 355 uh, is the passage that says that Jesus is not going to be killed, but raised to Allah, and the followers of Jesus would be preserved, uh, would be made superior to those who disbelieve until the day of judgment. That is an objective statement you can make to a Muslim. Their interpretation of that will be up to them. Um, and if it sounds contradictory to that passage, I think there's an issue there. But I'm not going to presume what an individual Muslim or Latter-day Saint or Jehovah's Witnesses or Catholics or Orthodox or I'm not going to assume an individual's perspective. And neither should you. You should ask them, what is your opinion on where your book says X? What is your opinion on... Uh, Joseph Smith's uh, The King Follett Discourse. Uh, you know, what, what is your opinion on the court case uh, that came out after the start of the Jehovah's Witnesses where uh, the translator was asked if he could read Greek and he said no. Um, you know, ask their opinion. Learn what their opinion is and work from there. Paul became all things to all people. He didn't attribute all things to all people. And, and also just simplifying down how we're going to witness. Knowing what to prioritize is an important thing. Philip didn't see the eunuch and instantly start saying, Hey, Jesus is the Messiah. He asked him, what are you doing? And the eunuch explained, I'm trying to understand this scroll. And they look at it, and it's the Isaiah scroll. And he explains who the Messiah is. And from there, by working off of where the eunuch was at, he converted the eunuch. And that eunuch went back and told his people. And <laughs> Ethiopia... Was, uh, or at least a large portion of it, I'm assuming, was converted. And that's where we get the Ethiopian Orthodox. It's important. Um, it's important to be cautious in how we go about things. It's, it's a dance. It's a tug of war. It's trying to meet someone where they're at. Take it from Jesus. Jesus met people where they were at. He waited at the well for the woman to come to him. They had a conversation. And he led the conversation in, a, in, in such a way. Read, read it, John chapter 4. Actually, you know what? Let's read it. So, John 4, verse, starting at verse 4. 
he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. And he came to the city of Samaria, called Sakar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Then came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away unto the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw from the well, uh, with, and the well is deep. Where, where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. For the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come to the well, nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And she answered, uh, and she, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem, when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshippers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that you are I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who you speak to I who speak to you am. So there, Jesus didn't just open with, hey, I'm the Messiah. Why don't you uh, repent of your uh, m your many husbands and your current one that's not actually your husband? Um, he starts off conversational. Hey, can I have some water? Prompting her to go, why me? You're a Jew. I'm not. Um, and, and then he says, well, if you knew who you were talking to, actually, you'd ask me for water, and I'd give you that water that is eternal life. And she goes, you have no pail to do so, um, and the well is deep. Are you better than the one who dug this well? And he, he just, he uses that conversation to explain 
the the great truth of what he is there to do, that he is the Messiah. He leads her to the questions, to the statements, sorry, not the questions, to the statements that he wants her to make to, to for her to get the message that he has to give her. Like in the Old Testament, God didn't just say, hey, I'm the only one. He also said, this is how you know I am the only God. These are the standards for a God. Let, let any other God come and display these attributes. Um, the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40, uh, in, the, uh, in the 40s of Isaiah. And I found more conver conversation goes better when you approach conversation this way. Um, when you just ask people, what is your perspective on this? What is What are your thoughts on this? What, what, what? Question marks. There should be more question marks than periods in what you say to people. Um, in my opinion. And you should very carefully guard when you use exclamation points. I think it's important to assess people to understand what will best speak to them. Because you cannot just speak to everyone the same way. I believe I've talked about this before. You cannot engage a Muslim with the same attitude you... In, uh, you cannot engage a Latter-day Saint with the same attitude you can engage a Muslim with. Uh, Muslims are more bombastic. They can take more bombastic conversation. Um, Latter-day Saints are very guarded. Um, they believe uh, if you're contentious, you're clearly not godly. Um, which is just strange to me because God is very contentious throughout the Old and New Testament. But, yeah. Now for some questions. Oh, goody gumdrops, we have questions. Uh, from the Discord, Deloon asks, um, Is it idolatrous to have hobbies? Except, example, painting, crochet, archery, reading, etc. Neutral things. If we spend more time on our hobbies than praying or reading scripture, for example, spending two hours reading scripture but spending three hours reading a fantasy novel, is that considered idolatry? Because we're giving it more time than God, and what do we do on the day? Uh, and what do we do on the days we don't feel like reading the Word or praying, but feel like doing our hobbies? Well, idolatry properly is setting up anything other than God and worshiping it. So. Having a hobby, uh, having a hobby that you let consume most of your life, is not technically idolatry. Um, what it can be um, is a failure to, um, as the Shema says, honor uh, to love the Lord your God with all your, uh, actually, let me read it directly. 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. <clears throat> I think a key way to have a healthy relationship with God, have an honoring relationship with God, is to, um, as much as you can, honor him in all things you do. Um, for example, I love D&D, <laughs> of course. I'm involved in two campaigns where the underlying theme is honoring God. Um, Tales of Yasir, um, Tomes of Time. Um, our, campa our campaign's meant, in a way, to help share the message of who God is. So while they are hobbies, and while they do consume a lot of my time, I have found a way to involve and honor God in them. Um, now, I, have a, I will admit, I have a very terrible prayer life. Part of that is God hears everything. God is omnipresent, and God is all-knowing. I mostly function... Uh, just with the mindset of um, God is always listening. I'm always communicating with God. Um, I, or I'm always in communication with God. It's like I, it's like I always have God butt dialed. Um, he's listening in. Scripture does say to make our prayers and supplication known. And I do as often as I can and remind myself to. I especially seek to say, hey God, X and X is going on. Um, I don't I don't think it's a I don't think it's a sin. Um, to have a hobby. Um, I, I don't think it's a sin to just have an off day. Um, the sin comes when you're actively, intentionally choosing rebellion against God. Um, like if you just decide, hey, I'm not going to make any effort to assemble with the saints. I'm not going to make any effort to communicate with God. I'm like when you're making active decision. Uh, like, God, I know I should be seeking to know you and what you say to do, but I'm not going to. That is where I would say you're getting into sin. Um, because then you've changed the, the attitude behind what you're doing. You've changed it to an attitude of, I should be doing this, but I do, I do not want to. Um, but God gets sometimes people are just tired or need a break from things. Elijah wanted to die. Um, and he asked God to just take him away. And God just sent, um, an angel to give him food and tell him to take a nap. <laughs> 
God gave him rest. He, he didn't reprimand. He didn't even reprimand Elijah. Um, for for that for not wanting to do what he was called to do. Um, so uh, from TikTok, the art of lem, the art of lemmy pop asks. Uh, let me rephrase my question: um, Should a pastor refuse to marry a couple simply because the couple? Are not believers. I think that a pastor should take every measure to, in as much as he can, ensure the health of a um, marriage that he is going to officiate. I believe that it should be guarded with counseling um, and prayer um, and a lot, a lot, a lot of certainty from the people to be involved. Um, I do not think a pastor should turn away a couple because they are unbelievers. I believe that no minister should ordain a, a, or should give credence to a marriage that is dis... that for other reasons would be dishonoring to God. Um... But unbelievers, unbelievers are going to get married. Um, I think the pastor has as much responsibility to that couple to ensure that they are getting married for the right reasons and that they are good for each other as he does to a believer. I, I don't think unbelief disqualifies you from entering <laughs> uh, a marriage. It'll disqualify you from entering heaven. Uh, <laughs> but, um, of course, I think it should also fall on the individual pastor. If the pastor is uncomfortable marrying uh, un non-believers, that's their prerogative. If the pastor is comfortable marrying non-believers, that is his prerogative. Um, I think it should only stop when the type of union is a direct violation of God's law. Um, that's, that's my view on that. The next question that might take a little longer to impact... Um, Spirit.led underscore life asks, what is your opinion on how we should treat meaningful variants when it comes to scripture? Examples would be the longer ending of Mark and the woman caught in adultery. 
so it's no secret, if you've listened to me, like, at all, that uh, I believe in textual criticism. I believe in textual criticism because pretty much every historic Christian believed in textual criticism and didn't have a problem with it. Or I should say at least every scholarly, scholar-level Christian, uh, because when the Vulgate was released, there was a riot in Antioch because Jerome uh, more accurately identified the kind of fruit or the kind of, sorry, the kind of tree um, in Jonah versus the Septuagint translation, uh, the Greek translation. Uh, especially for examples in the New Testament, uh, because of the vast database we have to work, we have at our ability to work with for uh, the, the New Testament text. Um, I think I think textual criticism is a valuable is a is a valuable and viable tool uh, if you get a sixteen eleven uh, King James facsimile you will see that there are textual critical notes uh, there are places where it say other uh, other readings are such and such. And, and things like that. I think we should treat meaningful variance critically um, and with as much um, objectivity as we can. At the end of the day, I want to know what Mark originally wrote. I want to know what John originally wrote. What Paul originally wrote. I want to know what the authors originally wrote. And if all of the evidence for a textual variant points to a later edition by a scribe, I am not going to be beholden to that as authoritative. And I know that's going to ruffle the feathers of fundamentalists who may or may not be listening to this. All I have to say to you is your book comes from no different a level of scrutinous scholarship. It's just that the scholars for the King James had a much smaller th base to work with than the translators of the New American Standard Bible. In fact, use, you know, using Catholic scholarship, uh, with the King James, uh, the text of the Reformation is based primarily on the Catholic Erasmus. God didn't inspire the translation. He inspired the original text. He didn't spot. He didn't inspire a scribal error. He inspired the original text. Now, can can there be good lessons? in variants? Sure. Uh, the Kami Yohanan is palatable to the teaching of the Trinity. Um, the woman caught in adultery um, is palatable to the attitude of Jesus. Uh, let him who is without sin be the one to cast the first stone, and no one could cast the stone.
Because guess what? Apart from Jesus, no one is without sin. But is it original to John? No. In fact, in some places, it was put in Luke. And in different places of Luke, and in different places of John. It's possible that it was a true, genuine story held in oral understanding by the early church that was written down at some point. But God did not see fit to make it a part of the original writing of the New Testament. And if God decides not to canonize something, who am I to differ? It's like I'm looking at the book of Enoch. And there's some very interesting things that are said in there that for when it would have been written, I do not think it would have been the mindset of the potential author to have written. And yet, God did not make Enoch a part of the canon. It's not part of the canon that was handed down by the ancients. The Jews never considered it canon. They didn't consider it scripture. So while there are some interesting, while there are some interestingly biblical correlated insights about the end times, it's not scripture. And in fact, there are also very unbiblical correlations about the end times. For example, the, the one passage I learned to harp on uh, Enoch 108 verse 1 says that the elect in the last day will follow the law, will follow the Torah. But we're under a new covenant where the Torah is the old covenant made with Israel. So while I can find it interesting and I can speculate about where the author got their ideas from, it's not scripture. And while I can look at Mark, the, the, the ending of Mark, <sighs> with its three different lengths, <laughs> um, and I, I can see that they correlate to other things that happened in the New Testament, I, can, I see that as a later addition. Because it, it makes sense with Mark being the teaching of Peter. Whenever they'd get to the end there, they could have the witnesses, the people who were actually there, come up and give their accounts of what happened after where Mark ended. And later scribes weren't satisfied. So they summarized information that could be found through the New Testament. The Kama Yohan in 1 John 5, 7 is not a great evil to have in your Bible. At the same time, I think the evidence clearly points to it originating in the Latin Vulgate, probably as a, a homily. A, a teacher looking at the passage, drawing the parallel between the three who bear record on the earth and talking about the three who bear record in heaven to give a paralleling illustration for the Trinity. Is that okay? And is that non-heretical? 
Yeah. Is that scripture? No. Because while it's cool to know what some scribe later thought of what John wrote, I am concerned first and foremost with what John originally wrote. And uh, that's all I have to say about that, I guess. Um, so yeah, that would conclude all I had in mind for today's episode. Thank you infinitely, people, for asking questions. We've had a drought lately. Um, so yeah, now I grab my NIV. And I ask you to turn with me to Matthew 5. Verses 3 through 12, where Jesus spake these things to his disciples. Blessed are the poor in heart, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you, on account of Christ. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Go in the peace and love of our Lord and Savior.